before we do that, it's not very often we have church on Friday night, so I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand up, turn around, mingle, shake a few hands, introduce yourself to a few people as we get ready to worship tonight. Let's just pray if we can. Father Jesus, we thank you for this day. We thank you for Good Friday. Lord, we thank you for what it represents in our life that our Savior, our God, came willingly to this earth to die for our sins. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for taking my sins and the punishment for me so that one day I can come to heaven and live with you forever. We just praise you. We lift high in this place the name of Jesus. The name that is greater than any other name. May you be filled in this service today. In our worship, Lord, in our praise, in our study of your word. May we feel you. May we meet with you here tonight. And may we leave and never be the same again. It's all to you, Jesus, we pray. And everybody said, Amen. He became sin who knew no sin. That we might become his righteousness. He humbled himself, he carried the cross, his love so amazing, his love so Yeah. 
Yes, no. 
this chorus just one more time. But before we do, I don't know about any of you, but I know there's been days in my life where I've just literally felt all alone. And there, I can be sitting in a room filled with people, but just feel utterly alone. And the greatest part to me about being Christian, about having Jesus in my life, is that I know that no matter where I am, no matter what situation I find myself, no matter how helpless or hopeless I feel, Jesus is right there with me. And that's why I love this song so much, because at times when people may let you down and you might feel all alone, you know that there's no one else for me but Jesus. Jesus is where I need to get my satisfaction, my fulfillment in life. It's through him. So would you just say a quick prayer in your heart? Would you ask God, just bow your heads, close your eyes right now. Ask the Lord to just speak to you tonight. Ask Jesus to be real to you tonight. Just thank him for the times that he's been there that maybe no one else has. Then with your your true heart, would you just sing this one more time with us? Thank you, Lord. There is no one else for me. None but Jesus. Crucified to set me free. Now I live to bring him praise. to set me free. Now I live to bring him praise. You may be seated. And man, thank you for your worship tonight and thank you for being here on a, uh, on a Friday Evening, Good Friday. For those of you who are brand new, welcome. My name is Christian. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Journey Church International. We are glad that you were with us for this Good Friday service as we open up God's Word and really begin to study. Here's my goal for the night. Uh, When you walk out of here, and if you've never been to our church, our church services are not normally like this. We're going to spend several hours tonight in God's Word learning. But my goal tonight is when you walk out of here, for that cross that you see in the corner, for you to never think about it the same way, Uh, For you to never experience another Good Friday or Easter Sunday uh, in the same manner. Uh, I even thought as we were singing through those songs, I thought, man, really, we should have started with teaching and then sang because there was so much biblical truth that we're going to learn tonight that was in those worship songs that we just sang. I hope that you'll never worship the same way after this evening because of how your mind is open to God's word and what Good Friday is all about and what the cross is all about and what Jesus is all about. And here's how we're going to start tonight. Our ushers are going to come down the aisles. They have Bibles. If you forgot your Bible tonight, if you're brand new, if you don't have a Bible to look at or a friend to share with, we're going to hand you a Bible tonight first and foremost. If you don't have any sermon notes uh, or, or what we would call kind of our sermon catalog, it's kind of long tonight. Uh, so you can take a lot home with you. I want you tonight, if, if you want to, to have a Bible in your hand so that you can follow along. We're going to do a lot of reading in God's Word tonight, a lot of study in God's Word. If you don't have a Bible right here on the front row, Jerry, Brandon, you need a Bible or notes or both? 
Okay, both. Yeah, and listen, if you have your phone, you can probably find the Bible on your phone. Some of you walked in with an iPad because you're much cooler than I am, so feel free to, uh, to use your iPad this evening. But I want you to have a copy of God's Word. If you don't have a Bible, keep this. This is yours to keep. You don't ever have to give it back uh, and take it home and read it. But tonight is a special night for me, and tonight is, uh, tonight is kind of the culmination of a five-year journey for me. Uh, and I'll start by explaining it this way. About four years ago, uh, I, was, I was just wrapping up um, my second master's degree from seminary. I was just finishing up my master's of divinity, which all you, know, all you can get after that is your doctorate of ministry, or you can go on and get your PhD. I'm not saying that to say that I'm really smart or I'm, I'm really cool. I just, I've, I've done a lot of Bible education. And I got to the end of that process, and I'll be honest with you, as a, as a guy who, I was a pastor, I'd been a student pastor for years, I was, I was teaching adults at the time in an adult Bible study in a Sunday night service, uh, as somebody who was you know, pretty educated biblically, there were still three books of the Bible that I was scared to death of. Uh, what I would call kind of the Mount Rushmore of, uh, of Scripture, I really believe there are five, uh, five heads on the Mount Rushmore of the Bible, uh, but three of them that had always been a challenge to me that I was afraid to study for this reason. I didn't think I'd ever understand them. Uh, and they're, they're books that, if you understand, they'll change your life forever. One of them is the book of Romans. One of them is the book of Hebrews. And one of them is the book of Genesis. And I decided four years ago that I was going to spend one year each in these books. Uh, and I was, at the end of that year, I was either going to be able to understand these books or not be able to understand these books. Say, so what are the other two you think would be on Mount Rushmore? Probably Isaiah and the book of Revelation. Uh, those are the five books of the Bible that, man, if you can get those, they'll radically transform your life. And most Christians are afraid of those books because they're just, they're so deep spiritually. But at the end of this three-year journey, what I realized um, when I got to the end of this is, I really did not understand Christianity before I started that journey. I really did not understand who Jesus was before I started that journey. I didn't understand how salvation worked. I didn't understand why Jesus did what he did. I didn't understand the songs that I sang. And this was somebody, I I was educated uh, in both undergrad and, and in seminary. But until I grasped the content of Hebrews, Romans, and Genesis... Um, I really feel like I, I didn't really get the Bible like I was supposed to. Tonight, I'm going to try to in the next few hours. And I'm going to teach for a little bit. And we're going to stop, take a bathroom break, get some cookies, get some food, re-energize. I've heard it said the mind can only take what the seat can absorb. Uh, so, you know, your butt is going to get tired and then your mind is going to turn off. So we'll, we'll break uh, and we'll break up the teaching a little bit tonight. But my goal was by the time you walk out of here tonight, for you to understand like I understand the deeper truths of who Jesus is why he died, what that means for you, and how it all biblically fits together. Uh, I don't know whether or not you know this, uh, but there are, if you want to take your sermon notes, and we'll kind of start rattling through these uh, right now, there are two what I would call bookend verses uh, in the life of Jesus that clearly tell us what his purpose is in the world. One of these verses introduces him. One of the verses is how he's introduced to the world by his cousin who is famous in our day. His name is John the Baptist. One of them is the verse that Jesus used basically to say goodbye to his disciples. So we have these two verses, one on the very beginning of Jesus' life, one on the very end of Jesus' life that basically say the same thing, except if you haven't studied Scripture in depth, you probably have heard these verses, but they don't mean a whole lot to you because you're not really sure how the process works. John 20, 1.29 is the first one. If you have your Bibles, I want you to open, the book, open to the book of John. 
Keep your Bible on your lap. We're going to kind of turn all over it today. Uh, I want you to feel free to write in your Bible, to take notes in your Bible, to underline things that you want to stand out. Uh, my goal as I read my Bible is always this. When you say, how, how much do you write in your Bible and how's all that work? Here's my goal. When, when I read my Bible and take notes, I write in my Bible as if I was going to lose my Bible. Someone was going to find it. And by reading my notes, they'd be able to know who Jesus was more fully. That's, that's the process I use when I write in my Bible. I'm always thinking, man, if somebody found this, can I explain something to them? So feel free to take, we should have given you a pen, take it, mark your Bible up. But in John chapter 1, Jesus is introduced to the world. And he's introduced with a pretty famous verse. I'm in the New International Version. If your uh, Bible's different, it'll sound very similar, but probably the key words will be the same. We, we start in John chapter 1. John the Baptist is baptizing. He's really got the nation Israel's attention spiritually. And Jesus goes to get baptized by John. And here's how John who is supposed to be, according to the Old Testament and according to Jesus, Jesus said, John is the one who's going to introduce me to the world. That's his job. That's his only job in life is to introduce me to the world. The Bible says that he's the Old Testament's Elijah. He will introduce the Messiah. So how did Jesus want to be introduced to the world with these words? John one twenty nine. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, you need to underline that in your Bible if if you didn't. John introduced Jesus and he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Those words are some of the most powerful words that have ever been uttered in the history of the world, if you understand them. If not, it's just a really cool sounding spiritual thing. You know, here's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That's really cool. What does it mean? I don't know. A lot of people don't understand that. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 26, turn just a few uh, chapters back to your left. Matthew is going to be the book uh, right between. You got Matthew, you got Luke, you got Mark and, and John. So you'll go past Luke, past Mark. Matthew chapter 26. So that's how Jesus was introduced to the world. That Jesus was the Lamb of God who was going to take away the world's sin. That's the thing that God wanted us to know about Jesus. That he was the Lamb of God who would take away the world's sin. Here's how Jesus said goodbye to his disciples. It's how we'll end our time together tonight by taking what, if you've grown up in church, what you know is communion, the Lord's table, the Eucharist, depending on what tradition you grew up in, you may have called it different things. But tonight we'll end by doing what Jesus did on some of the last few days of his life. Matthew chapter 26, we'll start in verse 17. And I want you to hear what Jesus says about himself as he concludes his life. We're going to see the intro, the conclusion, then we're going to put them all together. It says, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread. This, by the way, is the night before Jesus was crucified. The disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat Passover? This narrative. This, this is kind of a week in between what's going on here. He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed, and they prepared the Passover. When that evening came, Passover. Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve, and while they were eating, he said, Truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. They were very sad and began to say to one another, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who's dipped his hand into the bowl with me is going to betray me. The Son of Man has to go, just as it's written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It'd be better for him if he hadn't been born. Then Judas, you might circle that name if you're pretty new to the whole Bible study church thing. Judas was the one who sold out Jesus to the the authorities who had the authority to put Jesus to death. So Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, You have said so. 
While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink from it, all of you. Verse 28, you need to underline this one. This is as important as John one twenty nine. This is my blood of the covenant. Now, let me ask you this. I'm going to break right here. How many of you in your Bible, it says, this is my blood of the new covenant? Raise your hand if it says new covenant. How many of you, it doesn't say new covenant, it just says covenant. How many of you, right before the word covenant, there is a little um, letter that points you to the bottom of a page? Raise your hand. I want you to circle that little letter. I'm trying to just teach you a little bit how to use your Bible. And I want you to go down to the bottom of the page. In my Bible, it's a B. And you'll see that some manuscripts have the word new. This means, you know, they found hundreds of the book of Matthew that have been copied over and over and over again. If you have a newer translation, New Living Translation, New King James Translation, that means they believe the oldest, most accurate copies of Matthew, Jesus said, the New Covenant. In the New International, it says covenant, but it points us to the bottom of the page. It wants us to know that Jesus probably said the New Covenant. It's very important. This is my blood of the New Covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I want to stop right there and begin teaching a little bit. Jesus was introduced to the world by a man who said, here's a man who's going to take away people's sins and forgive them. Jesus left the world by saying, I am someone who's going to take away your sins and forgive them. Everything in between those two moments we know as the life of Jesus. And if you study the Bible... The story of Jesus' life is written in the Gospels. I mean, if you like from when he was born to when he died, the story of Jesus' life is written in the Gospels. The the word gospel means good news. And the four Gospels are simply four biographies of Jesus' life written by four different men. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all the stories of Jesus' life. Jesus' life opens with his purpose. Jesus' life closes with his purpose. But in between those two moments, you really don't learn the purpose of Jesus' life. You learn the story of his life. If you want to learn the story of Jesus' purpose, you have to know the Old Testament. And most people don't really hang out there a lot. Because what I found is I went on a four-year journey to really try to understand my Bible better, theology better, doctrine better. I learned that without knowing critical portions of the Old Testament... And specifically, if you look at the next line on your sermon, everything we learn about the nation of Israel's relationship and interaction with God when Jesus was alive. If you want to learn how Jesus and the disciples worship God and how that all worked, you have to specifically know Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. Those three books help us understand how people had a relationship with God. And you can know where Jesus was born, Bethlehem, and you can know where he grew up, Nazareth. And you can know where he, he based his ministry out of, Capernaum. And you can know where he died on Golgotha and that he raised from that. You can know all those things about Jesus' life. You can know that he walked on water. You can know that he fed 5,000. Uh, you can know that his mom's name was Mary and his dad's name was Joseph. You can know all those things about Jesus. But not understand his purpose in your life if you don't understand the Old Testament and Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. Now, if we were to start tonight just reading those books, we would all fall asleep before we finish because those are not the most intriguing books of the Bible, but they are the most important for understanding the cross. So what I'm going to try to do is not teach you all of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy tonight, but I believe as I have studied Scripture, if we can understand three 
major events in the history of Israel, three events, then we can better understand what the cross means in our life. And we can understand what Jesus did for us. What are those three events? One is Passover. So I'm going to try to teach you tonight a little bit about Passover. This was the most important moment in Israel's life, Passover. The second is the tabernacle. I'm not only going to teach you, but I actually put a, a little outline in your handout um, to show you the tabernacle. In just a few minutes, we'll, we'll walk through this and talk through this. If you don't understand the Old Testament tabernacle, most of the New Testament can't even make sense to you. It's just not possible to understand what Jesus did without understanding the tabernacle. That's what I've learned. And then I want to teach you about the Day of Atonement. Because this in the history of Israel was the most important day every year in the lives of the Israelites when it came to people having a relationship with God. If you want to understand how people had a relationship with God, you have to understand the Passover, you have to understand the tabernacle, you have to understand the Day of Atonement. Now, once we learn those three things, we're going to kind of unpack in our first session tonight four key phrases that we learn in the Old Testament but that Jesus is identified with, we're going to learn these four key phrases, and I believe it forever will change the way we understand the cross. The first is the phrase, Lamb of God. What in the world is the Lamb of God? God has a lamb. Mary has a lamb, right? Mary had a little lamb. fleece was white as snow. Apparently, God has a lamb too. I mean, you know, if we don't know what the Lamb of God is, then we just think God has a pet. The Lamb of God is very specific. Passover, tabernacle, and Day of Atonement, each have the Lamb of God. If you don't understand what the Lamb of God does at Passover in the tabernacle and Day of Atonement, you can't understand what Jesus did for you. We're going to understand this term that Jesus used in Matthew 26, 28, my blood. It's a really interesting thought. Drink this cup because it represents my blood. By the way, if you read the history of Rome and you study what the Roman historians said about Christians in the first 300 years of, of, of Roman history... They first said that they thought Christians were cannibals because Christians were always talking about the blood of Jesus. They thought these Christians, they drink blood. It's very important to understand blood. They also thought they were atheists. The Roman historians represented Christians as atheist cannibals. Why? Because they didn't worship all the Roman gods. So they said they must be atheists because they don't worship our gods. And they always talk about blood. They must be cannibals. Really interesting. Flesh and blood, cannibals. So you've got to understand what this means in the Old Testament to understand what it means for Jesus. You have to understand this phrase, forgiveness of sins. It's really going to be interesting. Man, we, we like to think in America today that there are three or four sins that are really, really bad. And if we don't do those, we really don't need to be forgiven. But we're going to learn what God's standard is. We're going to learn how falling short of that standard is sin. We're going to learn that we need forgiveness and what forgiveness means. And then lastly, we're going to learn about the new covenant. Probably the most important three verses in the Old Testament are Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, when God says, I'm going to do something new. Jesus claimed that he was it in Matthew 26, 28. He said, I, I am the new covenant. If you don't know what that means, you can't understand what Jesus did for you. So my goal tonight, my hope for you tonight, is that by the time we leave, you'll understand this cross. Some of you have worn a cross jewelry uh, for your entire life. Some of you have a cross tattoo um, somewhere on your body. But you don't, in your heart, really understand it the way that Jesus wants you to understand it. My hope is that you'll get it a little better by the end of tonight than you have it right, right now. We're going to study three events and then walk our way through these four phrases. Event number one is the Passover. 
say, where is that? Exodus chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, I want you to flip all the way back there. The first book of the Bible is Genesis. The second book is Exodus, so it's much closer to the front than the back. If you're brand new and you've, and you've just now, we just handed you a Bible, you've never had a Bible before, the table of contents will show you where that is or just tap your, num- your, your neighbor and say, hey, what, uh, what page is that on? Brandon, are you using one of the Bibles we pass out? What page is Gen- Exodus 12? Page 46. page 46. If you're using a brand new Bible that we just gave you, page 46 will get you to the book of Exodus. Now, why is it important to understand Passover? A lot of people don't put two and two together, but you, you need to understand. First and foremost, Jesus and his disciples were celebrating Passover. They weren't taking communion. I hear people say all the time, well, I remember when Jesus took it. Jesus never took communion. Jesus was celebrating Passover. We take communion, but guess what? You can't even understand communion unless you understand Passover. Because Jesus was celebrating Passover. So when we understand Passover, we can begin to understand Jesus. We can begin to understand communion. Now, the Passover is found in the book of Exodus. Exodus is pretty interesting because it's a book of the Bible, but it's also an event. Matter of fact, the greatest event in the history of of Israel. Uh, Maybe you've uh, seen Moses and the Ten Commandments all happen during the Exodus. Um, Maybe you've seen the Prince of Egypt or your kids have seen that animated movie. That is the Exodus. So there is Exodus that's a book. But then there was the Exodus. And you say, what was the Exodus? It was the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And Judeo-Christian history begins in Genesis chapter 12 with a man named Abraham. What's interesting is Judaism traces their history back to Genesis chapter 12 uh, in God's promise to Abraham. Christianity traces their history back to Genesis chapter 12 in God's promise to Abraham. Islam. Traces their history back to Genesis chapter 12 and God's promise to Abraham. Maybe one night we'll have one of these Friday nights in some course of the year and, I, and I'll try to trace back for you part of a study. I did an entire study in, in just in my life trying to understand it called the roots of holy war. I thought, why do all these people hate each other? It, it's Abraham's fault. Uh, you know, we can blame it on him and talk to him one day about it in history, but literally it all begins in Genesis 12. And that's where Judeo-Christian history begins. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God found a man named Abram. Before he changed his name to Abraham, here's what he said to him. The Lord said to Abram, get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. Circle that word land on your sermon notes. Is that, is that there for you? Yeah, circle that word land on your sermon notes. Um, I'll make you a great nation. Circle the word great nation. The words great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. You say, how has that come true? Abraham is the most well-known man in the history of the world. So how do you know that? The three largest world religions all celebrate Abraham as their father. God told Abraham, you're going to be the most famous man that's ever lived. That has come true. God fulfilled that promise to Abraham. Uh, I'll make your name great. You will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, God promised Abraham when he was 75 years old, I'm going to give you a, a land, I'm going to give you a nation to possess it. Guess how long it had been since God made that promise when we get to Exodus chapter 12? According to Bible history, 635 years. I want you to think about now, you know, my math isn't great, but the United States of America is not even 300 years old, right? Is it even, 200, it's not, is it even 250 years old? Yeah, I mean, think about 635 years. God told Abraham, I'm going to give you a great nation that's going to possess a great land. And nothing had happened yet in that 635-year window. Now, I can't teach you 
the entire book of Genesis. But basically, here's what happened. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons who became 12 tribes of Israel. They all kind of launched their own state. They lived together much like the 13 colonies in early American history. Uh, And there was a famine, a tremendous famine in the land of Israel. Uh, And basically, one of Jacob's sons had moved down to Israel. That's a a story in itself how he got there. Um, But Jacob and his family, after the famine, they had to move down to Egypt. There were only 70 people in their extended family. They had, if you were having a family reunion, I want you to think about every brother, sister, in-law, outlaw, aunt, uncle, cousin, grandkid, the, the entire family of Israel. By the way, Jacob's name was changed to Israel. That's where that name Israel comes from. It began as a family. 70 people went down to Egypt. They lived there. They decided to stay there. After 430 years, they got put in slavery because they became so powerful. After 430 years, there were 2.5 million of them. So this family of Israel had become a nation of Israel. But they were slaves. They didn't have any place to go. And God called a guy named Moses. And he said, Moses, go tell Pharaoh, who's running Egypt, it's time for this people, who's become a great nation, to go home. It's time to fulfill the promise that I have made to Abraham. So Moses went and knocked on Pharaoh's door and said, hey, uh, I was talking to God. God says it's time for us to go, so we'll see you later. And Pharaoh says, not so fast. Um, You're our entire workforce. You can't leave. Um, And and Moses said, yeah, God said you would say that, so like your land is going to be cursed um, until you let us go. And we begin to see these ten plagues on Egypt, plagues of blood and boils and gnats and flies and frogs and all this stuff. And we get through nine plagues, and finally Pharaoh says, after nine plagues, get the heck out. Take your God with you. I don't want to see you anymore. They get ready to go, and Pharaoh says, no, I changed my mind. You tell your God if he wants a piece of me, come and get it. That, that's basically how the story is laying out. So God tells Moses, here's what's going to happen. Tenth and final plague, it's going to be what we call the plague of the firstborn son. Every firstborn son in the land of Egypt, every firstborn animal in the land of Egypt, is going to die in a few days when my death angel passes over Egypt, every one of them. Except I'm going to spare the firstborn sons and animals of the Israelites to prove you're my special people. I have a special plan for you. I have a special relationship with you. There's just one thing I need you to do for me. All those instructions are found in Exodus chapter 12. We're going to pick it up. We're going to read uh, 30 verses at one time. So hang with me. Take a deep breath, okay? Actually, I should take a deep breath because I'm the only one talking out loud. The rest of you will be uh, reading it to yourself. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt. I'm in Exodus 12, getting ready to start verse 2. This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th of this month, each man is to take a lamb. Circle the word lamb. Don't miss it. It's the first time in Israel this lamb became really important. You say, who is it? We would refer to this as the lamb of God. We'll see it all through the Old Testament, okay? Each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household's too small for a whole lamb, they can share one with their nearest neighbors, having taken into account the number of people there are. You determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person can eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. And you may take them from the sheep or the goats, male or female. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, and all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood. Don't miss that. Circle it. Underline it. 
See, already we're only seven verses in and we've already found the Lamb of God for the first time in Israel. We've already found the blood for the first time in Israel. They're to take some of the blood and they're to put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they're to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with the bitter herbs and the bread made without yeast. <laughs> By the way, that verse right there, everyone always asks, first time you hear, why is the bread in communion so bad? Why you got these little crackers that like, that like suffocate me, you know? And if the pastor doesn't let you drink the juice fast enough, you choke to death on the little bread. What's wrong with the bread? The Bible says bread without yeast. When you see churches bring out a beautiful big loaf of bread, that's not what it looks like. It was a cracker. They didn't have time for it to raise and become Pillsbury doughish great, great bread. It was a wafer, crackery type of substance that I'm sure choked them too. Verse 9. It was all free. You didn't have to write anything down for that. Uh, don't eat the meat raw or boiled in water, roasted over a fire with the head, the legs, and the internal organs. Don't leave any of it till morning. If some's left till morning, burn it. This is how you're to eat it with your cloak tucked into your belt, with your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Underline, circle that. First time we hear that word becomes the most important word in Israeli history. The Lord's Passover. You say, why is it called Passover? I'll show you. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and I'll strike down every firstborn of both people and animals and I'll bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I'm the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you. Underline that. Why is Jesus' blood important? God sees it. It's a sign. What does it mean? We'll see. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will. What are the two words? That's why it's called the Passover. I will pass over. I will do a flyby. Next Friday, the royals are going to open their season at home. And there will be some kind of Passover. Something will fly over the stadium. That's why it's called the Passover. The death angel killing all the firstborn in Egypt passed over, hovered over, went over top the homes. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. If what? If you're covered by the blood. It's a, that's a pretty good phrase you hear every now and then in church, right? Verse 14. This is a day you're to commemorate for the generations. Uh, this is a day you're to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival of the Lord, a lasting ordinance. Stop right there. If you can picture how important this day is, this is the first thing that ever happens in the nation Israel. So this is like their New Year's Day, their Independence Day, their Easter, their Christmas, their Thanksgiving rolled into one. You can imagine how big a holiday this is. Their first day in the history of their world is also their Independence Day, is also the most important spiritual day in the world, is also the most thankful day that they have. You can imagine, this is a big, big day. Verse 15, for seven days you're to eat bread made without yeast. It's a week-long celebration. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses. Whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through the seventh shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly. Another one on the seventh. Don't do any work on these days except to prepare food for everybody to eat. That's all you can do. Verse 17, celebrate the festival of unleavened bread because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for generations to come in the first month. You're to eat bread made without yeast from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. See, we only have to take it once during communion. They had to eat it seven days. For seven days, three meals a day. For seven days, no yeast is to be found in your houses. And anyone, whether foreign or native-born, who eats anything with yeast, is going to be cut off from the community of Israel. Eat nothing made with yeast wherever you live. You've got to eat unleavened bread. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel. And he said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover Lamb. You might circle those three words, the Passover lamb. It's the first time we get a glimpse of anyone talking about a lamb of God. Take a bunch of hyssop. 
dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the door frame. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he's going to see the blood on the top and sides of the door frames. And he will, what's the word? Pass over. Remember what it is. He's going to pass over that doorway. He's not going to permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord's going to give you as he promised to Abraham, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean? Then tell them it's the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshiped. The Israelites did just what the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron at midnight. The Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, the firstborn of all the livestock as well, Pharaoh and all his officials. And all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. Whoa, big deal. Except there was a way to be spared from this horrible death. The blood of the lamb covering you would spare you in the eyes of God. Now, the most important thing you need to see in that entire narrative that I just read in Exodus chapter 12 is that it was the blood of the lamb. We've heard that phrase. That's how Jesus was introduced. It was the blood of the lamb during the Passover that literally saved the lives of the Israelites. The blood of the lamb that saved the lives of the Israelites. And what did they do? I think, do we have a picture of hyssop that we can show? Hyssop is is something that grows in gardens. You might have it around. It's kind of a long, beautiful uh, plant that grows Uh, We actually went to the store and tried to look for hyssop, and it was all bought up. Why? Because the Jewish Passover was just celebrated, and they've got it all. Um, But uh, we went to get some of this. Imagine that, huh? Um, We went to get some of this so we could show you what happened. So the Israelites had these homes in Egypt, right? And they had this door frame, and the death angel was coming, and he's up there somewhere. And God says, listen, here's how I'm going to distinguish you as my people from your people. And he said, you need to get some blood. This is not real blood. Don't worry. It's just, uh, it's just paint. And it's a paintbrush, not hyssop. But he said, I, I, I want you to get some blood. And he said, you need to mark on the door frame. You need to mark that. Uh-oh. I just shh, spilled some paint. Don't tell the people who work at the Gamber Center. Um, you, need to, uh, you need to paint the doorway. And then... You need to get underneath it and go inside. You see, this is a picture of a phrase that we hear in church all the time, right? Covered by the blood. You ever heard that phrase? You ever wonder what that means? This is what that means. I'm covered. There's a death angel. Hey, death angel. I'm good. Covered by the blood. And he passes on. You see, for the rest of Israel's history and for New Testament history, the blood on your life saves you from death. The blood of the Lamb. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is my, my blood that will serve as a new covenant and will forgive you of sins. See, I don't ever want you to forget the picture. Todd, just a very little spot right there. I don't ever want you to forget the picture of the blood covering the family who's behind it and making everything okay. But here's why we have to keep moving through the Old Testament. The Passover highlights... I want you to write, I want you to write these, these three words on your sermon notes, if there's any extra space. Write the word highlights, not teaches. Highlights, not teaches. The Passover highlights the spiritual significance of the Lamb of God. It's where the Lamb of God became famous. It's where the blood got its recognition. But it doesn't teach anything about it. It highlights it, but it doesn't teach it. Because you're thinking, well, wait a minute. 
So you're telling me there's still a death angel flying over and passing over and if I don't have any lamb's blood on my house that I'm going to be struck down and I'm killed? Is, 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 that, is that plague still going on? No. The lamb of God and the blood of the lamb for us doesn't, doesn't, uh, doesn't represent Exodus chapter 12. It just highlights the importance of the lamb, the importance of the blood. And what happens is we find out 60 days after this event, two months, 60 days after this event, Pharaoh told the Israelites, get out of Dodge. They got out of Dodge. They came to a mountain that the, the Bible calls the mountain of God. It's called both Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai. And there they got to the mountain of God and God finally said, okay, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. Let me tell you how this is going to work. And he basically gave them a set of rules and regulations for him to be their God and for them to be his people. The lamb, I, I want you to see this, the, the Passover lamb got the people of Israel to the law. The Passover lamb got them to the regulations because everyone asked, well, how, you know, how does God want me to live my life? It took 60 days to get from the Passover lamb to the law, but the law was going to lead them back to another lamb. So if there's one phrase you need to leave here with tonight that you need to think of in your head, the, the biblical process of Passover to Jesus in the midst of that was lamb to law and then law to lamb. Lamb to law. So the Passover lamb got us to the law, but the law leads us back to the lamb. I want you to say that. Lamb to law. Say that. Law to lamb. Again, lamb to law. Law to lamb. See, if you remember that, you'll begin to process this Old Testament truth. The Passover lamb gets us out of Egypt. It, it, it keeps us safe when God's judgment is coming. It gets us to the mountain where the law is given. And God says, this is how you have to live your life. The people of Israel said, cool, but we're going to find out that 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 wasn't good enough for them. In Exodus chapter 19, if you have your Bible, you can actually turn over there. It's just a few chapters. Uh, It might also be in in your sermon notes. No, it's not because it took up a little too much time. Exodus chapter 19, um, verses 1 through 8. The Passover lamb got the people to the law. And this is when the law happens. Exodus 19 God says, I'm going to give you some law to know me. People of Israel say, cool, we'll keep it. Exodus 19, 1 through 8, on the first day of the third month. So it's been 60 days now. It's on 61st day. After the Israelites left Egypt. On that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai. And Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God. And the Lord called him from the mountain and said, This is what you're to say to the descendants of Jacob. I want you to tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt. You saw my power. You saw how I carried you on eagle's wings and I brought you to myself, protected you. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you're going to be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you're to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back. He summoned the elders of the people, set before them all the words the Lord commanded him to speak. And the people all responded together, we will do everything that God says. So Moses brought their answer back to God. We'll do, hey, whatever God says. We saw him kill all those people. We saw the flies and the frogs and the blood. And we saw him part the Red Sea. And listen, whatever God says, we'll do it. We're his. They were at a real good place in the relationship, unfortunately. It, it didn't always follow like that. So Exodus, or, or Moses goes back up the mountain. And uh, Moses tells God, people are cool with it. What's, what's the law? And God says, take out your pen. Uh, actually, he said, get some stones. And he wrote on, the Bible says that God wrote on the stone the law. 
in Exodus chapter 20, and I'm, I'm going to, listen, I'm majorly leapfrogging because I don't have five or six hours tonight. But in Exodus chapter 20 through Exodus chapter 24, um, all the laws of God are given. Lamb to law. All the laws of God are given. Here's everything you have to do to obey me fully. To, to be in a relationship with me, a perfect God. Uh, in Exodus chapter 20, it begins with the Ten Commandments. Maybe you've heard of those. That's how Exodus chapter 20 begins. But then it goes into a lot more detail after that. In Exodus chapter 25 through 31, we see event number two that you need to be aware of. We see the tabernacle. Because here's, here's what happened. And I'm going to try to summarize this as best as I can. The Passover lamb got the people to the law. God said, I'm going to give you some laws so that you can understand how to live in relationship with me. And the people of Israel said, we'll do it. So Moses went up and God said, okay, here's everything you have to do to live in a relationship with me. And it was too much. God demanded perfection. God said, I'm perfect. You have to be perfect. So as Moses is writing these laws, he's probably thinking, oh, no, that's not even possible. You know, in in my days when I was in college, the the cool thing to do was the gallon challenge. Any of you remember the gallon challenge? Uh, Yeah, if you're over 30, looking at me like I'm crazy. Um, But the gallon challenge, it's impossible to drink a gallon of milk with inside an hour. Uh, it's, it's literally impossible. If you don't believe me, go home and try it and email me the picture of you throwing up when, uh, when you're done because that's what will happen. To, in today's age, I'm finding it on YouTube, it's like eat a spoonful of cinnamon. It's also, I guess, impossible. I haven't tried that one because I'm older and more mature now. Um, but I guess it's impossible to eat a spoonful of cinnamon because you can't or a package of cracker under a minute or you know all those crazy little things. They're things that are impossible to do. Well, God gave Israel some laws that were impossible to keep. You say, why would he do that? That's not fair. He knew what was going to happen. So he said, here's my laws. You're not going to be able to keep those. So here's my tabernacle. And here's how you and I are going to live in relationship when you mess up. Here's here's how I'm going to fit. When you mess up, here's how I'm going to fix it. And we see God lay out a tabernacle. Now, the key verse in the tabernacle is Exodus chapter 25. You can flip over there if you want. We're kind of living in the book of Exodus a little bit. This one is also going to be on your sermon notes. Um, But in Exodus chapter 25, after God says, you know, listen, here's my laws. You're going to break these. Here's how we'll fix them. He says this. He said, have them make a sanctuary for me. Right? Write the word sanctuary. Literally means dwelling place, home. Have them make some place for my presence to live. Have them make a sanctuary for me, and I'll dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern that I'm going to show you. And then God, for the next six chapters, says, here's exactly what I want it to look like. Now, we could not have done tonight without our volunteers. Man, I just am so overwhelmingly thankful for all our volunteers, especially the PowerPoint people tonight. Um... I can't, it's got to be hundreds of PowerPoint slides that have been put together tonight to help you all take notes. And these people aren't paid. They get these notes from me sometimes at not great hours and they put them together. Somebody came in and set all this sound stuff up. If it wasn't for people plugging cables together, no one would have been here. Here's the point I'm getting to. This is how the Israelites started. They had a portable church and they had lots of pipe and drape. You see this pipe and drape that we use? Literally the tabernacle, if you look, the tabernacle was pipe and drape. Poles, cross beams, drape, little things that held it. I mean, so every time you're putting up pipe and drape and you begin to complain about the pipe and drape volunteers, think, you know what, the tabernacle was pipe and drape. Pipe and drape was God's idea. Um, it's a good thing. Um, but what he did is God made a, t- uh, the, the people made a tent for God's presence to live in. I'm, I'm going to go through it in a minute, but I'm going to, and this is a tremendous 
leap because I don't have time. But here's what you need to understand. In the book of Leviticus, um, God give, Leviticus stands for the Levites. The Levites were the pastors, the ministers, the, the ones who were supposed to teach the law of God and hold the people accountable. The book of Leviticus is literally how to worship God. This is God's standard. This is what you need to keep. If you fail, here's how you fix it. That's the book of Leviticus. But in the book of Leviticus, we find three things. We find all the regulations for worshiping God. This is how I want to be worshiped. We find in the book of Leviticus all the regulations for approaching God. If you're ever going to come talk to me, here's how you need to come talk to me. I'm God, you're not. You can't just barge in at this point. We're going to find out you and I can barge in anytime we want. Why? Because of Jesus. We're going to get there. Uh, We also find out regulations for conduct in a relationship with God. And to basically summarize everything, all Leviticus does is highlight the differences between God and in us. God is great. We are not. God is perfect. We are not. God is holy. We are not. God never makes mistakes. We do. God doesn't have any sin in his life. We're, we're born to sin. And you say, what do you mean you're born to sin? I mean, we are born with a nature that knows how to rebel before it knows how to worship God. You say, well, how do you know that? If you have a child, you understand you did not teach your child how to say no or mine. They were born with those two words. You've had to teach your child to say please and thank you. We, we were born to, to kind of rebel, the Bible says, because we're sinful people. God is not a sinful person. And probably the, the two verses that highlight it the best uh, is Le- Leviticus 11, verses 44 through 45. Here's kind of the summary. God says, listen, I'm the Lord. I brought you out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I'm holy. You want to be in a relationship with me? You have to be just like me. Guess what? That's impossible. It's interesting that Peter, the Apostle Peter, repeats this verse in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. And usually when people, if they have this verse memorized, they have it memorized from 1 Peter, not Leviticus, but Peter's just ripping off Old Testament stuff. Uh, Peter says, just as he who called you is holy, be holy in all you do, for it's written, be holy because I'm holy. Peter didn't come up with that. God gave it to the people of Israel in Leviticus 11. The thought is you have to be like God to have a relationship with God. You say, well, that's a problem because I'm not like God. You're right. It is a problem. It's a problem. So how are we going to solve the problem? Lamb to law. Law to what? Lamb. A lamb is going to fix that problem for us. You see in Leviticus chapter 3, Leviticus 4, Leviticus 5, Leviticus 6, Leviticus 7, all of those chapters deal with when, what happens when you sin. Now, I want to give you a little bit of a definition of sin. You say, what is sin? Sin is a violation, and I did not put this on your sermon notes. Forgive me. You can write it on the back of this little sheet of paper. You have some room. Sin, according to Leviticus, is when we violate God's perfect standard. That's sin. Well, sin, when I mess up, say a cuss word. No, we wouldn't necessarily probably categorize. I mean, you probably shouldn't do that, but that's not necessarily. Well, sin, when I have an affair. No, that's not necessarily. Sin is anything that violates God's standard of perfection. In Matthew 5, 48, Jesus says, be perfect. Therefore, your heavenly Father is perfect. You say, Christian, that is an impossible standard. You're right. It is impossible. God didn't expect us to be able to do that. He always provided ways for imperfect people to have, a, to, to have some type of relationship with a perfect God. But the greatest way was Jesus. 
We're at the tabernacle now, so, so we'll try to go through that. Let me give you a little lesson on Leviticus chapter 10 to, um, to just highlight. And if you, if you have your Bible and want to turn there, you can. Leviticus is right after Exodus, just a few uh, verses ahead. But in Leviticus chapter 10, we see a really interesting scenario. What we learn in Leviticus 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7 is that God is perfect and we are not, and God calls that separation sin. It's a violation of holiness. Um, anything that you do that God wouldn't do causes you to be a sinner. We're, we are not equal with God. Uh, I, I think everyone in this room realizes that. Um, sin separates us from God. But in Leviticus chapter 10, we have an interesting scenario because we have a Levite. Uh, we actually have the son of two sons of the high priest, the most important spiritual man in Israel. Uh, these two sons who say, listen, we can be close to God. We understand that everyone else isn't perfect, but hey, we're close. We're closer than them. We're more spiritual than them. So here's what we want to do. We want to be close to God, but we want to be close to God on our terms. So we're, we're going to go on into God's presence uh, and see what happens. Leviticus 10, 1 through 3, it didn't go well. It says, Aaron's son, Nadab, and Abihu, and who named these Old Testament kids, all these crazy names, um, took their censers, they put fire in them, and they added incense, and they offered an authorized fire before the Lord. Here's the important thing. If this is on your sermon notes, you need to... You need to underline this. If you have your Bible, you need to underline this. Um, they offered an authorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So they said, yeah, we heard what God says. We don't care. I know what God says, but here's what I think. God, God's not cool with that uh, most of the time. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, this is what God meant when he said, among those who approach me, I'll be proved holy. When people, before people approach me, they're going to know I'm perfect and they're not. And there has to be some kind of mediator in the sight of all the people. I will be honored. And Aaron just kept his mouth shut. He remained silent. He didn't say anything. Why? Because he understood. Take this little sheet of the tabernacle that's had kind of the top lifted off for you. And let me explain to you what Aaron's sons did and what God said had to be done. And let me help you understand what the tabernacle symbolizes more, more than anything. Here we see the tabernacle. You can read all the captions if you want later. That just kind of explains what it is. But the tabernacle had two courts. Um, the one, you, you kind of see the, what we call a menorah, the little candle stand, the little bread, the little table with the bread on it, kind of in the front. I'm going to walk. Jason, am I cool if I walk over here? I'll just point it out here. It, um, well, that's not good. Um, had, uh, had two courts. So court one is between purple curtain and purple court curtain. Court number two, what we call the holy of holies, the most holy place where God's presence dwelt, is behind curtain number two. This little guy right here is what we call the Ark of the Covenant. It's, it's where symbolically God's presence dwelt. Even if you've not been to church, you've probably heard of this in Indiana Jones because he went after it, right? I mean, Indiana Jones went after the, cov- after the Ark of the Covenant. Even Indiana Jones knew you're not supposed to take the lid off and look at it uh, because that's where God lives, and he's, he's not cool when you do that. So here's what happened. Only according to the Bible, and I'm going to get ahead of myself because I'm off my notes yet, but the priest every day, 365 days a year, would come into this area, and this is where he did ministry. He would light the lamp because if you notice, there's no electricity in there. It was completely dark. This is why all the sayings of Jesus were portions of the tabernacle. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. The tabernacle needed a light to come on so you could see to do ministry. The tabernacle had a table of showbread, which represented that we understand that God gives us everything that we eat. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. 
it was all, all the statements he made were statements in, in, in the, that uh, represented the tabernacle. This was called the altar of incense. And what would happen is when the priest would go in here, before they would ever do ministry around God, they would light this altar of incense so that there would be an aro- a, a pleasing aroma. Why? Because they had sacrificed all these animals, blood everywhere, probably didn't smell good. But inside the tabernacle, it always smelled good. There was always a pleasing aroma. Remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians. Paul said, your life will be a pleasing aroma to those people you're around. Why? He's going back to the tabernacle. But they would light this. The entire thing would fill with smoke. And then only once a year, when they couldn't even see, filled with smoke, they would go behind this curtain and they would approach God and they'd get close to God. The only person allowed to do that was the high priest. He was only allowed to do that once a year. But Aaron's sons thought, ah, we'll try that. Let's try it. Let's see what happens. So they got the censer. They lit the incense. They parted the curtain and boom, they died just like all the crazy Russians um, in, uh, in Indiana Jones, um, whatever that movie was called, Temple of Doom or Ark of the Covenant or whatever. Oh, Germans, my bad, crazy Germans uh, at the time. So that's, that's how the timber tabernacle worked. But here's what you need to understand looking at the tabernacle. You need to understand the tabernacle symbolizes that there's separation between God and humanity. God is separated. God is behind the curtain. God is the Wizard of Oz, right? Don't go behind the curtain. God is separated, physically separated. You can't get close to God. You can love God. You can know about God, but you can't get close to God. You need God, but you have sin, so you're separated. Here's the equation I want you to write down. Spiritual need plus spiritual sin equals spiritual separation. It's a problem. So how are we going to solve that problem? Jesus does. But until you understand this, you can't understand how important Jesus is in your life. Spiritual need plus spiritual sin equals spiritual separation. So the Passover got people out of slavery It got them on their way to the land. But then God said, hey, if we're going to be close, you need to understand me. I need to understand you. So here's how this is going to work. They understood, man, we're never going to be close enough. God says, that's okay. Yes, you are not perfect, but I still want to have a relationship with you. So I'm going to provide a way. I'm going to provide a way that uh, even though we're separated, that we can be close. The, The tabernacle created a system where we could worship God. We can know God, but we couldn't be close to God except one day a year, event number three, Day of Atonement. It's why Day of Atonement is so important. Because the Israelites said, wait a minute, God brought us out, God loves us, but we can't ever hang out with God, we can't be close to God, God can't look on us. How's that work? God's perfect, we're not. God says, listen, one day a year, all your imperfections, I'll cover them up, I'll forgive them, and we'll be cool, and you can start over. Once a year, you can start over. That day is called the Day of Atonement. You say, well, how how does God allow us to start over? Lamb to law, law to what? Lamb. He said, there's going to be a lamb of God that I will sacrifice instead of you uh, because your sin deserves to die, just like Aaron's sons. But instead of you dying, I'm going to let you bring a lamb that dies. That lamb will be your substitute. And on that day, I'll cover up all the sin that you've done. By the way, the word atone, um, we talk about the day of atonement. The word of atone means cover. Uh, to repair a broken relationship by covering a wrong is the best definition of the word cover. So when we read about atonement, here's the picture of atonement. I'm covered. Covered by blood. This is the best picture of atonement that you can possibly have. I'm covered by blood. That allows me to be safe. That allows me to be okay with God. Um, Now, where is the day of atonement? Leviticus chapter 16. 
Flip over there if, uh, if you can. This is an important day for you to understand. If you're going to understand Jesus, you have to understand Leviticus chapter 16. And what does Leviticus chapter 16 have in store for us? We've just finished the event in Leviticus chapter 10 where uh, Aaron's sons have died because they just tried to approach God on their own terms. God says, don't do that. Leviticus chapter 16, we start in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he can't come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark or else he's going to die. For that's where I live. That's what this verse means. For I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. He says, that's where I live. You can't just come into my house unannounced. Verse 3, this is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He's to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He's to tie the linen sash around him, put on the linen turban. These are, these are the things that the high priest wore. These are the sacred garments. He must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. From the Israelite community, he's to take two male goats for a sin offering, a ram for a burnt offering. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin, offering to make atonement for himself, for his household. So first, he needs to be forgiven for his own junk. Then he's to take the two goats and present them before the Lord. These are two male lambs uh, at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He's to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord, the other for the scapegoat. Circle that word scapegoat. Man, this is an important concept in Old Testament history. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to, you, to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household, slaughter the bull for his own sin offering, take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord, two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense, and take them behind the curtain. That's behind curtain number one. Go ahead and put that picture of the, altar, of the tabernacle back up if you can, Jan. Is that possible? So before he even goes into curtain number one, there we go. You see the, you see the little dude standing outside with his weird little clothes? That's what he was just been told to put on. Um, so he's got his little clothes on. By the way, he looks very much like the Pope, right? The Pope's very ornate outfit is modeled after Old Testament high priest, the big hat and everything. Um, and I don't say that jokingly, it's true. Uh, so before he could even go behind tent number one, he had to make sure that he was clean spiritually, he had to be forgiven spiritually, then he could go two handfuls, and he's going to go and light the incense. Verse 13, he's to put the incense of the fire before the Lord. The smoke of incense will conceal the atonement cover above the tablets of the law so he won't die. So that place behind curtain number two there, completely smoke-filled. Aaron can't even see it because that's where the presence of God lives. He's to take some of the bull's blood and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the atonement cover. That's the Ark of the Covenant. He shall then sprinkle with his finger seven times on on the Ark. He shall then slaughter the goat of the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain. So he's going back now. First time he went for himself. God, please forgive me by the blood of this lamb. Second time, different lamb. He went for the people. God, please forgive the people by the blood of the lamb. Um, All right, verse 15. So he shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people. Take its blood behind the curtain. Do as he did with the bull's blood sprinkled on the atonement cover and in the front of it, in this way, he'll make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. So what were those sins? Anything that fell short of perfect was a sin. He's to do the same to the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one is to be in the tent of the meeting from the time Aaron goes in to make the atonement to the most holy place until he comes out, having made atonement for himself, his household, and the whole community of Israel. Then, 
He shall come out to the altar that's before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the bull's blood, some of the goat's blood, and put it on the horns of the altar, sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times to cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the Israelites. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of the meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. Watch this now. It's cool. He's to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins. He's to put them on the goat's head. He shall then send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat carries on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it in the wilderness. Then Aaron is to go into the tent of meeting, take off the linen garments that he put on before he entered the most holy place, and he's to leave them there. Almost through this section, verse 24. He shall bathe himself with water in the sanctuary, put on his regular garments, come out, sacrifice the burnt offering for himself, the burnt offering for the people to make atonement for himself and for the people. He shall also burn the fat of the sin on the offering of the altar. The man who releases the goat as a scapegoat must also wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. Afterward, he may come into the camp. The bull and the goat for the sin offerings whose blood was brought into the most holy place to make atonement must be taken outside the camp. Hides, flesh, intestines be burned up. The man who burns it must wash his clothes. Bathe himself with water afterward. He may come into the camp. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. On the tenth day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves and not do any work, whether native-born or foreigner residing among you, because on this day, atonement. What is that? Covering. We'll cover up all the sins. Atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then, before the Lord, you will be clean from all your sins. So we see here, verse 30 is the most critical verse. On this day of atonement, all your sins are going to be covered. Our relationship is going to be cool. You'll be clean before the Lord. You'll be clean from all your sins. How's it going to happen? A lamb, two things are going to happen. One, you're going to have one lamb that's going to die in your place because an offense of God's holiness demands that something die. So a lamb's going to die. But then you've got to get your sin out of here. So you're going to take a second lamb, and, and I want you to picture now because this is a picture of Jesus in the New Testament. So the, the priest is doing all this stuff. He's got blood all over his hands, right? I mean, all over his hands. He's sprinkling all through. He's got this blood everywhere. And he goes and he lays his hands, right? Lays his hands on the blood of this second lamb, this, this male lamb. And you can imagine when he gets done praying for the lamb and lifts his hands up, you can imagine that this lamb has a ring of blood around his head, right? Very much like a crown of thorns would provide for Jesus later in history because he's the lamb of God. And they take this lamb and they take it outside and they kill it outside the camp. Symbolic of your sin has to go away. It's got to go away. You're going to be close to me. Your sin's got to go away. So we put the sin on the lamb, smack the ram on the lamb on the rear. Out he runs into the desert and the sin has run away. That's the picture presented for us in the Day of Atonement. Now, the people of Israel had one had the opportunity to have their sins forgiven and to be clean before God only one day a year. But somebody else had to petition God for them. They say, man, God, only one day a year that they could be clean before God, that their relationship with God was okay? Well, you know, that's better than no days a year because that's how many they deserved. Leviticus twenty-two thirty-one through 33, God says, keep my commands and follow them. I'm the Lord. Don't profane my holy name for I must be acknowledged as holy by the Israelites. I'm the Lord who made you holy and who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. You've got to be perfect like I'm perfect. The Israelites said, we can't be perfect. He said, I know, but every year we're going to start over. Every year we're going to start over, and I'll give you another chance. Every year of your life we're going to start over, and I'm going to give you another chance because I desire so much to be close to you, 
even though my perfection and, and your sin is, is hard for them to have fellowship with each other. So the Day of Atonement shows us our need for forgiveness when we fall short of God's perfect standard. The Day of Atonement shows that we need a mediator. We need someone on our behalf to go to God and say, hey, will you make this right? We need a mediator to represent us before God seeking the forgiveness of our sin. Again, Jesus says, I'm the mediator of a new covenant. Starting to put it together now? Jesus becomes the mediator. Now, here's the deal. We get through the Passover. We get through the tabernacle. We get through the Day of Atonement. And all we're left with is spiritual need. We've not become any closer to God. We've learned a lot about God. But we get to the end of this and think, man, this stinks. Like, okay, lamb to law, law to lamb. I never get to be close to God. That's where Passover, Tabernacle, Day of Atonement leaves us. There's a lot more need than fulfillment. But what we find out, we're beginning to understand God's relationship with humanity. Through the Passover, we, we see that people need to be rescued from bondage in their life. In, in Israel, they were real slaves. But in this life, we're slaves to addictions. We're slaves to emotions. We're slaves to events that have happened in our past that just, it's like they hold us in prison. People need to be rescued spiritually. We learn from Passover that people need to be protected. Because, man, it's a dangerous world and people need God's protection on their life when bad things are happening. We learn from the tabernacle that people are separated from God. We learn from the tabernacle that people need mediation to be, to be able to interact with God. And we learn from the Day of Atonement that people need to be forgiven and that people need to be clean spiritually. We learn all those needs, but we don't have any answers up to this point. The Old Testament, when we get to this point, ends what I call with spiritual problems, not spiritual solutions. God, you've shown me everything I need, but you've not shown me how you're going to help me. God, how are you going to help me? How are you going to help me, God? The answer is Jesus. And the Old Testament said he was coming. Jesus is the answer, and the Old Testament said he's coming. Now, let's look at our three terms again, four terms, before we, uh, before we break for a little bit and come back. Four terms that show us our need and Jesus being the answer. John 1.29, look, the Lamb of God. What's the Lamb of God? Well, we know what the Lamb of God is now. During Passover, the Lamb provides protection for God's people against judgment and death. So we need protection in life, spiritual protection. Jesus, according to John the Baptist, is going to provide spiritual protection for us. Look, the Lamb of God. Well, who's the Lamb of God? Well, in the tabernacle, the Lamb of God serves as our substitute. For God's judgment against our sin. We're going to read in our second session that the, the wages of sin are death. God said, your sin, your imperfection in order to get to me, demands, my holiness demands that you die. Your sin doesn't allow you to be good enough to live with me. Didn't allow him to be the Israelites good enough. But God said, look, I'll take the lamb. Instead of killing you, I'll kill the lamb. They, that lamb can be your substitute. And that'll make things right with me. So Jesus is going to be our substitute. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What's the Lamb of God? Well, on the Day of Atonement, the Lamb provides forgiveness for sins when our lives fall short of God's standard. I don't know about you, but my life every day falls short of God's standard of perfect. Every day. Many moments during the day, way too often to admit without feeling bad about myself. But the Lamb of God fixes all that. 
Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus in Matthew 26, 28 said, this is my blood. What does the blood do? Well, the blood during the Passover was a visible sign to God that we understand the sacrifice is needed to protect us. We understand that God says something has to be sacrificed in order for us to be saved. Why the cross? Something has to be sacrificed in order for us to be saved. Why the blood? This is my blood of the new covenant. Well, in the tabernacle, the blood is a visible sign to God that we understand that a sacrifice is needed to cleanse us. So God, not only do I need your spiritual protection for my future, but God, I need your spiritual cleansing from my past. You say, well, I don't know that I need God's spiritual protection from my past. Really? You don't remember those homecomings and those proms and those weekends and all those times with your little brother and little sister and those road trips? And I mean, listen, we all need God to clean us up a little bit from the life that we live that's far short of perfect. Jesus said, this is my blood. Why do we need blood? Well, on the day of atonement, the blood was a visible sign to God, again, that we understand that a sacrifice is needed to cover our sins. The only thing that allows God to look at us and not see sin is that the blood covered up our sin. By the way, this is a second session teaching, but I'm going to put it in now. How how did God get back into relationship with Adam and Eve after their very first sin? He had to kill something. Killed an animal. He made them sheepskins. Not until they were covered could they come back into his presence. And God has been covering our rears ever since. You know what I'm saying? God has been covering with the blood us spiritually. So we understand why blood is needed spiritually. Jesus said, my blood will be poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. He said, wait a minute, forgiveness of sin, how, how, does, how does that work? Well, Passover first and foremost teaches us we are totally relying on God's standards for extended life and eternal life. How were the people of Egypt going to be saved? God was going to tell them, here's how you are saved. Paint the doorway, get inside. My standards will protect you. Lamb to law. Here's the law. My standards will protect you. But those standards are impossible to me. So God says, I'll give you another lamb and I'll cover that up because I want your sin forgiven. I don't want you held accountable for your life. The tabernacle, we see God's sin. uh, We see sin served as both a visual realization. We could see it all the time in a literal separation, a curtain from God's presence. Um, the one thing we didn't show on the tabernacle graphic, I don't know why it's not on there, um, is that there was a huge basin made out of the finest bronze that could be made. It was called the bronze basin, filled with water right in front of that tabernacle. And the priest, before he could go inside, would have to wash himself. By, By the way, the way that doctors wash their hands now comes from the high priestly regulations of washing your hands. When they found out that people who were giving birth were dying at way too high of a rate. Uh, and the answer was, many, many years ago, you can read this in medical journals, that the doctors would give birth to a baby, and then they would go give birth to another baby, and they would not wash their hands in between. So a Christian who was studying the Old Testament said, here's how we properly cleanse ourselves. And if you've ever seen a doctor wash their hands, they'll wash their hands, and they'll hold it up, and it'll drip all the way down their elbows, and then they'll scrub up, and they'll go, and deliver it. That's what the high priest had to do. He had to wash from his hands down to his elbows. But he's looking into this bronze basin, which served as a mirror. It showed him his sin. As he looked into it, he saw himself as a sinner that needed cleansing. So the tabernacle showed that you needed to be clean before you could go see God. And it also showed that we were separated because of sin. In the Day of Atonement, of course, in the Day of Atonement, sin was judged. A lamb was killed. 
Sin was covered. The Ark of the Covenant had blood cover it. Sin was removed physically. The lamb with the ring around its head is outside the camp. Um, it, it, and, and it was removed literally, but it wasn't removed spiritually. This didn't, according to the Old Testament, change anyone spiritually. All these things that were going on, these outside regulations, weren't changing people from the inside out. You say, well, how are we ever going to get past all this? You know who asked that question? Jeremiah. He was a prophet uh, during, during Israel's worst period when their city, Jerusalem, was being conquered, when their tabernacle, which became a temple, was being torn down. Jeremiah said, how are we going to have any kind of relationship with you again? And God says what Jesus repeated in Matthew 26, 28. This is my blood of the new covenant. God said, I'm going to give you a brand new relationship with me. It's going to become personal, not just national, not just traditional. I'm going to change you from the inside out. Where is that? Jeremiah 31. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn there. This is where we'll break in just a minute. Say, where's Jeremiah? Just keep going past Proverbs and Psalms. You're going to hit Isaiah, which is going to be a big, thick book. You'll get at least one page of Isaiah if you're flipping slowly. Right after Isaiah is Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah chapter 31, God says, man, I'm getting ready to do a new thing. God actually calls it a new covenant. I'm going to do something new. He said, your relationship with me is going to progress past the point of all these lambs and bulls and tabernacles and temples because, here's why, because you fail at that every time. Like, you stink at trying to follow my rules. So I'm going to change it to make it easier for you to have a relationship with me. Where is it? Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. This is where the Bible gets exciting, man. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant. Underline those words. Circle those words. Highlight those words. Go get a tattoo of those words on your bicep. New covenant. That's like the most important thing in the Bible. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It won't be like the old covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. They kept breaking it, even though I was a husband to them. I loved them the right way, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I'm going to make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'm going to put my law in their minds. I'm going to write it in their hearts. I'm going to be their God and they're going to be my people. No longer are they going to have to teach each other And say to one another, this is how you know the Lord, because they're just going to know me from the inside out, from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive, not cover it up, but I'm going to forgive their wickedness. And I'm going to remember their sin no more. I'm going to forgive it. I'm going to get rid of it. It's going to be gone. A day is going to come when that's going to happen. Say, when was that going to come? When the new covenant came. What did Jesus say happened when he was getting ready to go to cross? New covenant's coming. The rules are changing. God is getting ready to change the rules so we can be close to him, and he's going to do it through me. Now, somehow, the people of Israel weren't looking forward to this new covenant in Jesus' day. As a matter of fact, they said, listen, we'd rather hold on to the old stuff than transition to the new stuff because we're comfortable with the old stuff, even though it always leaves us separated from God. Matthew 15, 1 through 6, Jesus is having this fight with the Pharisees. Some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Why don't they wash their hands before they eat? Jesus replied, why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? God says, honor your father and mother. Anyone who curses his father and mother is going to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father and mother is devoted to God, They're not to honor their father and mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Jesus said, you have skipped the most important parts of the Bible where God says he's going to do something new so that you can hang on to the traditions of Israel. You've missed it. And you're going to miss it. God's word speaks of a transformed relationship from the inside out. 
God's word doesn't speak of a law anymore where you have to wash your hands to go see God because God changes your heart and he changes you from the inside out. And Jeremiah 31 promises a relationship with God marked by intimacy, forgiveness, and inner guidance. Man, we take those three promises, intimacy, forgiveness, and inner guidance, and we hear Jesus say, I do these things in your life. We say, he's it. He's the new thing. He's the new covenant. The rules have changed, and I can now be close to God. John 15, 15, he told his disciples, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything I've learned from my father I've made known to you. God said, there's going to come a day when people are close to me. Jesus said, it's now. I'm him. John 17, 20 through 21, Jesus prays, my, God, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, as you are in me and I am in you. May they be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. God said in Jeremiah 31, I'm going to be in people and they're going to be close to me and we're going to be together. Jesus said, that's getting ready to happen right now. And so many people ignored it. Jeremiah 31 says, God's going to, there's going to come a time when he doesn't cover our sins. He just forgives our sins. He takes them away. He doesn't hold them against us. Jesus said in Mark 10, I want you to know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So, I mean, nobody forgives sins. Not, sin is never forgiven. It's covered but not forgiven. But Jeremiah says a day is coming when it will be forgiven, not swept under the rug but taken away. Jesus said, I can do that. In John 16, verses 7 through 11, Jesus says, Very truly, I tell you, it's good that I'm going to go away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. We call that the Holy Spirit. But if I go, I'll send him. And when he comes, he's going to prove to the world to be uh, in, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment about sin because people don't believe in me about righteousness because I'm going to go to the Father where you can see me no longer about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Jeremiah 31 said there's going to come a day when all your teaching from God doesn't come from your neighbor. It comes from the inside when you know God. Jesus said that's happening right now. Jesus was going to end the separation that humanity experienced from God. By ushering in the new covenant. He was going to do it. He was going to change the rules forever. He was going to allow people to be close to God every day, all day, and to know God and be changed from the inside out. You say, how's he going to do it? Look at me. How's he going to do it? He has to die. He has to die. Why? That's what God said. He has to die. See, for Jesus to do everything that we're excited about now, he has to die. In, in our next hour together, we're going to pray and break in just a few minutes. We're going to look at a passage in Hebrews chapter 9 and 10 where the author of Hebrews says he had to die and here's why. And he gives us seven reasons that Jesus had to die in order for us to experience life with God like he wanted us to experience. We're going to teach you in just a minute. Here's how, here's how we're going to end this session. Um, and man, I hope that you're learning and enjoying. I, I hope you'll stick around for the second session. If you slip out, uh, you're going to miss the best part because the best is yet to come. But here's how we're going to end this session. If you're, if, if, I almost said if you're here tonight, that would include everyone. Um, if, uh, <laughs> is what I need you to do. If you're a guest tonight, if you're brand new, first welcome. I met a lot of people who've never been to our church outside today. Welcome. Uh, we're glad that you're here. We handed everyone a connection card when you came in. We're actually going to take our offering now so at the end of the second session, we can just do communion and worship and sing. But if you're brand new, please fill this out. Let us know that you're here. Uh, we we want to send you an email to ask you how we did and ask you how we can pray for you and your family and minister to you. And, and if, we, if, if you have any needs that we can help meet. Um, if you're just here in attendance tonight, let us know that you're here. 
throw your name on this card and uh, and just check regular tender if you're uh, if you're one of us. Um, and if you have anything we can pray for you about anything, please write it on this card. Uh, this is going to kind of be our collection of cards uh, time. So please do this. Uh, we're also going to take our offering right now. If, uh, if you're brand new and you want to give to our church, um, this does not replace our Sunday morning offering. So if you normally give on Sunday, cool. Uh, if you want to give extra tonight or you're brand new or want to give, or if you're not going to be here Sunday, that's great. Uh, we just always provide an offering time just in case to meet all those needs. But don't feel compelled if you normally give on Sunday to give now as well. We're not taking an offering because we're hard up for money. We just want to give people an opportunity to give if God is leading their hearts to do that. So ushers, come on up um, if you would. And uh, we, will, uh, we will do that. Let me make sure I'm not missing anything. Uh, here's what we're going to do after our offering. We're going to take a 10-minute break. Um, and they will... How long is our next countdown video? It's five. So we got coffee crackers, cheese, cookies, whatever, water outside. You can step outside, get some fresh air. Five minutes, you'll see this video come on. So if you're just peeking in the room, you'll see what's going on. We're going to start with a couple songs of worship. I'm going to come back and teach a little more through uh, Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to end by taking communion, doing a little more worship. Um, I want to tell you how much it blesses my heart to be here. I love to do this type of thing because I believe it takes people to the next level spiritually. We started our church in this room, January 26, 2011, um, with uh, about 40 adults. It's the first Bible study we ever had that was open for the public right in this room. See that white door right there on the wall? That divides the room in half. We only did half the room because we knew that we weren't going to have very many people show up that night. Uh, And on that night, we started. I sat on a stool right here. We didn't own any sound. We didn't have a screen. We didn't have a projector. We used all their stuff. We used one of their microphones. And we said, God has called us to plant a church here to reach people far from God and see them become passionate Christians who make a difference in the world. And part of our mission from day one was to have nights like these where we could take people to the next level spiritually and intellectually and to see uh, what we've become and to know that on Easter, you know, that night we had 40. We'll, we'll probably ac- approach close to 500 people Easter Sunday uh, at our church to see what God has done through the men and women who started with us. I just want to remind those of you who were here January 26th, Look what God does when you just put one foot in front of the other and you try to make a difference in the world. Look what God does uh, and what will happen in the years to come. It's just going to be awesome. So thanks for being here. Um, once, you, uh, once you give your offering, uh, you know, feel free to just file out and race each other to the coffee and, and, uh, and all that fun stuff. And then we'll come back and, uh, and do some more teaching in the New Testament um, in just a moment. God, thanks for the time together. Thank you that uh, Jesus is going to fix our problem. Because when we're in the Old Testament, we're separated from you. We need your protection. We need your forgiveness. We need your cleansing. But there's just a barrier set up. And God, thank you that Jesus said, I can remove that. And I will remove that. And he did. Uh, But he had to do it through the cross. So, Lord, as we focus in next hour on Hebrews chapter 9 and 10, help us to understand more about the cross and be more thankful for the cross than we've ever been before because of what Jesus has done in our life. We love you. Let's see things in uh, Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Ushers, go ahead and, uh, and pass those baskets. Please, if you're brand new, fill that card out. Throw it in the offering basket to let us know that you're here. Regular tenders, let us know that you're here. Uh, and we'll see you all in about 12 minutes. Don't start the official 10 minutes until the ushers are done, folks, so that everyone has a little time to relax. And we'll see you right back here in a few moments.